Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, global health systems have been challenged like never before. As time and resources were directed towards responding to the virus, it was the dedication of healthcare workers that kept services running. Amongst the uncertainty, our hardworking Queensland clinicians have continued their pursuit of excellence, innovating and adapting the way they work to ensure consumers always receive the best care possible. To them, the pandemic was an opportunity to learn and grow and to ensure healthcare delivery continues to evolve to the ever-changing landscape. Because if we've learned anything from the last two years, it is that things will always change and our clinicians will always rise to the occasion. With a workforce of more than 80,000 people, getting the right messages to the right people at the right time can prove challenging. Our ED staff aren't sitting in front of a desk to receive the latest updates. ICU clinicians are focused on providing care to the critically ill rather than refreshing their browsers for the latest updates. At the onset of the pandemic, Chair of the Queensland Clinical Senate, Dr Alex Markwell, in partnership with the statewide clinical networks and Clinical Excellence Queensland, worked together to enhance the way they communicate with our frontline staff and provide curated, easy to digest information to ensure our staff are empowered to do their jobs and keep business as usual work functioning at its best. So this morning you'll have a brief presentation from me talking about how we have kept clinicians connected throughout COVID. I'd like to firstly respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are meeting today and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and particularly acknowledge our First Nations people who are with us this morning. As I mentioned, we're going to talk about clinician engagement. That's not a very sexy topic after something that we've just heard, but it is so crucial to everything that we do in our day-to-day -day lives, but particularly now as we start to really prepare for what will probably be the toughest period that we've ever had to face. I'll particularly be reflecting on the Queensland Clinical Senate, but I also would like to really acknowledge and thank our other clinical partners, particularly the statewide clinical networks, and uh, I'd like to thank Professor Liz Kenny for her ongoing support and partnership throughout uh, my time as chair. For those of you who don't know, this is what Queensland Health looks like. It's very complicated. It is still complicated to me even now. And in fact, I'm pretty sure there are some more committees on there that weren't there when that diagram was drawn. But you can see on the far left of screen there, the statewide forums, and there are clinician forums, both the Clinical Senate and the Clinical Networks. Those clinical forums feed into some of the other statewide bodies, but also really importantly, inform the decision-making at the various levels of the department, including up at the highest level. The Queensland Clinical Senate is made up of membership from across the state. Each of the hospital and health services nominate three clinician representatives. We also have representatives from the Chief Executives Forum, the board chairs. We have regular guests, including our chief profession officers and other external partners. And of course, a very strong and ongoing presence with Health Consumers Queensland, and I'll touch on that in a little bit more. And then depending on the type of meeting that we're having, we'll invite additional guests, both clinical and consumer guests and other relevant stakeholders. I'm very fortunate to have been supported throughout my term 
by a wonderful executive, um, some of whom are up on the screen here, and also many of our other clinicians who have taken random texts, phone calls, emails at very strange times of the day, particularly relating to COVID, but that important network, both formal and informal, of clinicians who I can tap into and provide input directly into the system is really essential in terms of creating a dynamic decision-making process, but also making sure that we've got really up-to-date information at all times. In addition to those members who you saw on the screen there, we also are very excited to welcome three new members to the executive. Dr. Marlo Coates from Torres and Cape, Mr. Anthony West from Central West, and our incoming chair, Tanya Kelly, who I think has now just snuck into the auditorium. And I'm really excited to be able to hand over to Tanya, who will take on the role at the start of next year, when I'm actually gonna take some long service leave. Um, my youngest uh, daughter starts prep. And after the last very crazy three years, I'm looking forward to spending a little bit of time with her and reminding her that she does actually have a mum who <laughs> does something else except for meetings. She does often make cameo appearances in um, video conferences. She loves nothing better than to sit on my lap and wave at people. She gets very upset when the DG doesn't wave back. I haven't had the heart to tell her that I take the camera off. There are some meetings she's allowed to participate in and some she's not. But the role of the Clinical Senate is really around clinician leadership, consumer collaboration and better care. And we provide strategic advice to the system around issues that will affect delivery of patient care. Now, pre-COVID, obviously, there were a huge range of things that we considered. In the last couple of years, we've had to try and balance information and advice around COVID, but also how do we continue non-COVID care? This morning, I was able to dial into an international advisory committee meeting, which sadly, because of daylight savings, started at 5.30 in the morning, so it's been an early start. But it was fascinating to hear from clinicians from all around the world and hear from them and understand their experiences through COVID. And being able to get that input and being able to then provide that feedback straight into the system straight away is incredibly important. The thing that came up in that meeting this morning that we just need to keep really front of mind, I suppose, as we work through COVID is how do we manage our non-COVID care? And clinicians in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly the UK and Canada, really reflected on a significant burden of non-COVID care that has been increasing in the background for the last 18 months, including cancer screening, chronic disease management, and other really important elements of providing care for our patients, which have now come to a point, really, including the fact that they've suspended cancer screening in Canada for many, many months now. So we will invariably see a rise in our cancer diagnoses. I mentioned before Health Consumers Queensland. I'd like to really, at this point, formally acknowledge and thank our partners at Health Consumers Queensland, particularly Melissa Fox and Erin Evans, and the wonderful consumers who have provided input to all of our meetings, all of our sessions, all of our deliberations along the way, often at very short notice. So how, how do we connect clinicians? Before COVID, we would hold face-to-face -face meetings. We would have representation on the different committees, as I mentioned, and we also collaborate with other groups. Not a lot has changed from that point of view in terms of COVID. We still hold meetings. They're online meetings now, though, instead of face-to-face -face meetings. Um, we absolutely collaborate with our network friends and partners, our hospital and health services and our consumers, but we do it differently. We really focus on our communication strategies. We have regular podcasts that are released, and those are interviews with frontline clinicians providing some insight into what their experiences are. Uh, and also we do have some social media presence and I encourage you if you're on LinkedIn or Twitter and Facebook, please, uh, please follow us there. 
I love photos. Uh, this photo was 11 years ago now, the first Senate meeting, inaugural Senate meeting, held in Parliament House and the first executive. And there are some faces there that you may recognise. I don't think any of them are in the room at the moment, but this is what we look like now. So December last year, we held our Adolescent to Young Adult Care virtual meeting. This was actually scheduled as a face-to-face -face meeting in March last year, and of course, um, we had to defer it. We were very excited, though, that we were still able to hold this meeting in a virtual format, and you can uh, see up in the top corner, um, our health minister was actually able to join us for that meeting, which was um, a really wonderful opportunity for us to see and hear from our minister, but also for her to hear directly from our clinicians and consumers. We have held some face-to-face -face leadership forums and this was taken in 2019 in my first year of the term and we hopefully will look at some other leadership opportunities that we can hold in, um, in future years, potentially virtual, potentially face-to-face. And just to give you an idea about some of the topics that we've covered, this year already we've considered the patient safety and quality system strategy map and also recently meeting on connecting data, not just collecting. And then last year, as I mentioned, the adolescent to young adult care and also uh, a session in, in May last year at the end of what we thought was our COVID wave. We were done with COVID then. We reflected on innovation and transformation in models of care in response to COVID. The lessons in that meeting still hold very true actually and we'll continue to reflect on those throughout. I mentioned our podcast. Uh, this is just a, a snapshot of some of the recent episodes that we've released. The podcast episodes are very short. They're somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes. They're quite entertaining. Obviously, the speakers uh, have, give their own personal spin on things, but um, our recent interview with Anya Den, who's an emergency physician and retrieval medicine specialist, ranging through a, a whole um, uh, spectrum of clinicians, and we're hoping to interview the um, recently retired Commissioner for Ambulance Services, Russell Bowles, as well, to get his perspective on uh, life as a commissioner. As far as COVID-19 goes, we've been really active, as, as everyone has been, as you know, but uh, we've really worked hard to try and provide guidance for our clinicians across the state, both within Queensland Health and externally, of course. We do have a publication site. Early on, we were focusing on um, some of the ethical considerations at the beginning of the pandemic, some of you may recall that hydroxychloroquine was all the rage and we actually sadly saw that some clinicians were prescribing that drug for themselves. We haven't gone as far as to do a publication on ivermectin. I'm hoping that we don't need to, but we, we obviously watch, the, um, watch that space and see how things are going. I just wanted to flag this really fantastic example of a collaboration between our clinicians and consumers. Our Compassionate Conversation Guide was developed last year in collaboration with the Care at End of Life team within HIU and also with Health Consumers Queensland. And I'm hoping that Anne might be in the audience, but thanks very much to Anne Curtis for your fantastic work in that space. I know you had to really push <laughs> at times to get, to get this finished, but um, this is a really helpful guide about how really how to break bad news in a virtual context where we can't have face-to-face -face meetings. We often aren't allowed to have visitors in our hospitals, even when our loved ones are very unwell, although um, we have seen some relax relaxation of those restrictions for care at end of life. But I encourage you, if you're interested, please have a look at that website. You can download that poster, and we did send hard copies uh, of that poster out to every HHS. Now, I'm interested, show of hands, who gets these emails? Excellent. <laughs> uh, so our frontline COVID updates, which everyone hopefully uh, has seen and hopefully you subscribe to directly. Katie, who just made a cameo appearance there on stage, and the team have been incredibly dedicated in making sure that we get an email out every day that there's something 
to say. Uh, we don't always have something to say, but recently I have to say that pretty much every day there's been something to update everyone on. Even yesterday during the showcase, Craig was able to pull together an email that went out yesterday. It was really lovely to be able to congratulate and acknowledge um, Crispin as his appointment as incoming Cho. It may look as though we haven't done an awful lot this year. We, we have held a couple of non-COVID related meetings in the second half of this year, but the first half of this year was really focused on COVID vaccination. And it seems so long ago, but back in February, we're all you know, fixated on allergic reactions in Pfizer. Do you remember when that was a thing? Like, that's what we were worried about, that people would have allergic reactions. And of course, some still do, but how things have changed in that time. We've held multiple sessions to inform our clinicians so that they can inform their patients about the, the role of vaccination, understanding um, any adverse events that may occur. And particularly as we started to see some adverse events with AstraZeneca, um, making sure that our clinicians understood what to look for, and also making sure our clinicians understood how to represent the risk of something terrible happening which is incredibly rare and still remains um, vanishingly rare. And as we heard from um, Professor McNeil yesterday, compared to the morbidity and the mortality of COVID is, is really um, very, very small. Most recently, we've held a pregnancy-specific vaccine session. Obviously, this is an area that many people um, are very interested in. The overwhelming evidence, as we know from international and interstate clinicians, is that COVID will affect pregnant women in the third trimester particularly, with very severe disease and very high rates of um, preterm birth and sometimes, sadly, infant death as a result of COVID. So really encouraging both our um, pregnant clinicians but also our pregnant patients to be vaccinated is a crucial part of this next stage, knowing that at some point we will have significant levels of uh, COVID we're hoping that's when we reach our vaccination threshold, although given how many independent clusters we've had in the last few weeks, um, we may not be that lucky. I showed you an organisational governance structure chart before. This is another one. This has the COVID governance in there as well. Just to highlight that we have the normal governance structures of the department, but we also have a COVID decision-making process. And just to reassure everyone that clinicians do feed into both of those processes. We have a very good integration of those decision-making processes across the system. And uh, we will continue to make sure that clinicians are represented, along with consumers, at all of those decision-making meetings. I won't dwell too much on Delta. We've heard from our DG this morning and we also heard from Professor McNeil yesterday, uh, but we do need to be prepared. It will come to us. It may look different to how it has looked interstate, particularly as we're coming into the warmer months. We know that countries who have had their outbreaks in summer tend to have a lower, potentially a lower peak, uh, but we have to make sure that we are prepared. There is no way that our population will not be exposed to COVID at some point and continuing to reinforce the vaccination message is so important. This is the COVID snapshot from yesterday, just to give you an idea about the numbers and seeing our peak. Uh, we obviously were very worried about New South Wales and they still have the highest number of both inpatients and um, intensive care admissions. Interestingly, the New South Wales figures are very consistent with Victoria in terms of roughly 20% of people who are in hospital will be admitted to intensive care. We've seen slightly different ratios in terms of ventilation. So in Victoria, it's over 50% of people in ICU will end up um, being ventilated. In New South Wales, they've managed to keep that ratio a little bit lower. Uh, but nonetheless, a significant burden both on our inpatient care and also our critical care services. We've seen the numbers of cases in Victoria 
eclipse those in New South Wales. New South Wales is on the way down. Victoria, sadly, still looks like it's on the way up. New South Wales um, had originally predicted peaks of over 2,000. They were able to to reduce that peak somewhat, which has been um, really important. You may also recall that there were significant concerns about ICU capacity. That still is front and centre of our clinicians in New South Wales. They're very much at the limit of their built capacity, but we now turn our attention to Victoria, whose numbers are growing very quickly, and although their admissions are much lower, we anticipate that they will also, in the next few weeks, uh, see their admissions and ICU cases go up. A reminder about vaccination, as I said, every, um, every opportunity to vaccinate, the better. So what, what do we see for the next 12 to 18 months? We will still have COVID briefings. I think that's a really important part of what we do, making sure that our clinicians throughout the state understand what's coming and how best to prepare. We have an upcoming Senate meeting around clinician engagement and procurement. And Dane got to meet my inner nerd when I was asking him about his mask and confessed that during the Olympics, I spent more time looking at what masks the athletes were wearing and working out who was wearing P2N95s and making sure that their clinicians had access to those. I've learned more about PPE and procurement in the last little while than I ever thought I would need to know. But we will have a Senate meeting on that, looking at how we can better prepare for future procurement. Voluntary assisted dying legislation has been passed, so there'll be engagement around that. And then, as um, was mentioned this morning, looking at virtual care system reform. And also, I guess a topic that I'm very interested in, but has the potential to be pushed aside potentially in the context of COVID, but thinking about the health impacts of climate change. We've seen extreme weather events, we've seen flooding events, we've seen storms and cyclones. We need to think about how that will impact our um, health of our patients and how we can continue to deliver very high quality care. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.